Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H brighton.org. We are starting a brand new book today, which I'm very excited about, the book of James. And guys, it works so perfectly with where we just came from in Esther. Did you guys like Esther sort of walking through a narrative like that? I really love that. I know you kind of had to like it because like, what are you going to do on Sunday, right? If I'm preaching that. Um, but there's a great connection between Esther and James. Uh, Esther, Old Testament narrative, James, New Testament wisdom literature, but it connects at this idea of suffering and, and challenge and hardship. And if you've read this book before, um, uh, this might not be familiar or, or new to you, but if you've never studied James, James, the author of this, is the half-brother of Jesus. He's sort of a, a ruling elder uh, in Jerusalem. He's, he's a pastor. He's shepherding people. And people during that time were going through all sorts of heartache and, and poverty, religious persecution. And so he's writing to God's people that can't just be in the church like this. They're actually spread out everywhere. We're gonna learn in a moment that we're uh, the, the spore or the dispersion of God's people. They're in heartache. They're out of community. They're all over the place. They're suffering. And James tells us something about God's purposes and God's promises in suffering. And it matches really, really well with Esther seeing God but working behind the scenes. So before I get too much into it, I just want you to know I'm very excited. I prayed a lot about this message and this journey together over the summer through the book of James. Uh, but here's how I wanna get started to kind of get your mind ready for thinking about trials and hardships. Let me put a couple of numbers in front of you for a moment. Um, what, do the, what do these numbers do for you, okay? What are the numbers? Eight, 27, 34, four, 19, and 10 mean to you? You're like, bro, nothing. Like, no, Cassie put her fingers up and she goes, nothing. <laughs> like, nothing. Absolutely, they mean nothing to you, right? Especially without context. If someone just handed you those numbers, you'd be confused, right? If I wrote those on a sheet of paper and passed that to you, you'd be like, bro, what are you doing? I don't know what's going on here. It seems random and definitely needless, those numbers. But what if I told you those very numbers are the winning, winning lottery numbers to the biggest U.S. lottery jackpot in U.S. history, winning you $1.5 billion. Right now, you'd be like, say them numbers again. That's what many of you would do. Those aren't random to you anymore. Well, guys, this was actually the fact. In January of 2016, someone was given a lottery ticket with these random numbers, 8, 27, 34, 4, 19, and 10. And those random, meaningless, needless numbers transformed into $1.5 billion. Now it means everything, doesn't it? Those numbers mean everything. What's the point? Context really matters for us. It takes something, context does, that's random and seemingly needless, and it makes it, it, makes it meaningful and it makes it valuable. And that's what the purpose, guys, of trials and hardships have in our lives. Trials and hardships in God's hands, they take something that's, that's random and confusing and needless, but in God's hands, he takes those things and he makes them beautiful. 
And he makes them meaningful. He makes them good and purposeful. And guys, that's exactly what James is pointing out in today's passage. He's revealing the purpose and the promise of trials. And that's today's message. If you're taking notes, if you're a guest, we always encourage folks to take notes, maybe ask questions in community groups or maybe meet with me over coffee over the weekend, talk about that. So the title is uh, The Purpose and the Promise of Trials. So as we walk through the first couple verses of this book, uh, I just wanna give you three uh, truths about trials. And I'm using trials and hardships and suffering sort of... um, Uh, synonymously, working those words together. So three truths about trials. So let's see what God has to say through James about hardships, hardships that you're going through. Verse two, he starts out his entire book after the introduction of telling you that he's James, he is a servant of God and Jesus Christ, he's calling Jesus God. He says, greetings. He just kind of jumps right into it because the people are hurting. They're in trials. His introduction to this book is one of the shortest ones in all the New Testament because he wants to get right into it because of what they're going through. And he says this in verse two. He says, church, Christian, guest, count it all joy. My brothers, that word there in the Greek for brothers is adelphoi. It means brothers and sisters. So he's not just talking to guys here. He's using brothers like a familial guys and girls language. So he says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith, it'll produce steadfastness. And if you let steadfastness have its full effect, then you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's how James starts the book right out the gate. So here's the first truth that he really wants us to see here if you're taking notes. It's that trials will happen. That blew none of your minds. You're like, yeah, bro, I've been alive long enough. I've been through ample trials. Absolutely, none of this shocks us, but he wants you to make sure that you grasp this reality. He says this, he says, count it all joy when, when you meet trials. Did you hear the emphasis there? He's not saying if you face trials, right? He says, count it all joy when you meet trials. Guys, listen, human experience reveals to us that you're either doing one of three things right now in this room. You're either heading into a trial, you're in the midst of a trial, or you're exiting a trial. Guys, trials are all around us and they will always happen to us. It's not if, but it's when. And guys, we all feel this, right? All of us in this room, online, you feel that this is true, right? We know this to be true. Guys, not a week goes by that you and I don't feel a personal struggle a vocational hardship, or a relational challenge with someone, right? We all go through trials. One writer says it another way. He says this. This is kind of depressing, so just hang with me. Good news is on the way. This is like the bad doctor's appointment, but I'm getting towards the antidote here in a moment. One writer says this. Guys, no matter what precautions you take, no matter how well you put together a good plan in life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy and wealthy and happy with friends and family or successful in our career, something will inevitably ruin it. Happy Sunday, right? A trial will occur and it will set you off course. Now you look at that, you're like, wow, that's depressing. But you're also like, it's kind of true too, right? Guys, every worldview and every human experience acknowledges this reality. But listen, it's only in Christianity that we actually see a God who brings hope in that trial 
and a purpose in that trial. He brings healing in that trial and he'll actually bring an end to that trial and all suffering one day in the kingdom, amen? Pastor Tim Keller puts that same concept in a different way. He says, Christianity is the only one that teaches. Contra to fatalism, yes, suffering was destined to happen, but God destined for suffering to end as well. Contra to Buddhism, yes, suffering will cease, but not through an eightfold path, but by one man's cross. Contra to karma, yes, suffering can be about natural consequences of our wrong, but God takes what's evil and he turns it for our good. Contra to secularism, yes, on the surface, surface suffering means purposeless, it feels purposeless, but in Christianity, God works beneath the surface and behind the scenes to bring purpose out of chaos and healing out of hurt. Because in Christianity, we actually see a God who is present in that suffering, pulls good out of that suffering, and will one day put an end to every ounce of suffering you have ever faced. So the first truth of this passage prepares us for reality. Trials will happen. But we got to get a little bit worse before we get better. Number two, trials will vary in number and in category and in degree. I'm just throwing on bad news right now. I'm sorry, it's going to get better, okay? Trials will vary in number and category and degree. So James continues to this sort of heartbroken early church. He says, guys, count it all joy when you meet, and then he puts plural here. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. The fact that the words trials here, guys, and and kinds are both plural. They indicate that hardships will be many in your life and they will be common. They'll be constant. It says, and various kinds of trials, it reveals to us that hardships, guys, they're, they're gonna vary in category and in level and intensity. There's various types and kinds of trials. For some of you in this room, you've been through short ones. You've been through long trials. You've been through emotional ones, physical ones, mental, circumstantial ones, and they come in varying degrees of hardship, whether it's a, maybe a pet we're going through something with, or it's our child, it's our grandparents, the death of a loved one, it's a paper cut. There are constant trials, and they vary in degree and difficulty. Guys, our trials will come at us in all shapes, in all sizes, and in all angles. And it seems from Scripture, guys, that we can safely put trials into at least four categories. Let me just share a couple of these categories of how they're gonna come at you so you're sort of ready for them and to see the hope of what God can do in them. First category, real briefly, is that trials will happen just because we live in a broken world that's full of sickness and has a ton of disease and there's people that fall short of God's standards like me. And so sometimes just trials happen in your life because the world around us is broken Sin exists, and so therefore there's brokenness in the world. So for me, we share often that for me, one of these trials of the world being broken is that my body's broken, my wife's body's broken, and we can't have biological kids. It's a trial of long-suffering for our family. After doctors, after doctors, after treatment, after treatment, no biological kids come to us unless there's some sort of intervening from God. It's a trial 
that our family has to go through because we live in a broken world. Number two, trials happen sometimes because of our own sins and our own mistakes. It's sort of the natural consequence. It's not just God like punishing us, but when we go outside of God's good plan for human flourishing, when we go our own way, we end up hurting ourselves. Just a quick example of that, a mistake is on Monday, I was gonna take my family to the beach. Emily was out of town. And so I'm packing up the girls in the car. I'm putting a giant cart uh, inside my car and we're on an incline in Brighton. And I was like, maybe I can just put the cart in fast enough and then shut the door and I can just make it the time right. So I'm like practicing moving the cart forward and then shutting the door, moving the cart forward. And then I like push it real hard and the handles of the cart blow through the back of my car, glass shatters everywhere. Glass gets in my foot, gets in my hand, gets on my daughter's hand. I'm like, what have I done? Why did that happen? Because I'm dumb. I had a self-inflicted trial. But more than just mistake, we've been through some real ones, haven't we? That's dumb, but we've made some really hard ones, haven't we? I know for me in my past, I have added trial because of my sin because of how I've treated or acted towards my distant relatives. There's trial, there's conflict, there's strife because of my sin in that relationship. So not only is this the world broken, but I break the world with my actions. Number three, biblically, here's another category is that trials exist simply because God wants to use them to grow you or to change you. So this may not be because the world's broken or because you sinned. God just introduces a hardship in your life in order to grow you or change you to be more like him. Uh, If you have ever been in a relationship, you know that any sort of relationship creates trial and conflict. You've got a sinner and a sinner trying to have a relationship. It could be a romantic one. It could be a platonic one. It could be a roommate one. It could be a marital one. It could be a a child one. It could be an employment one. Whatever that conflict of relationship is creates trial. And God put that into being so that you could grow in a concept of grace and truth and mercy. He wants to use that hardship trial to become more like him. So for our family, introducing foster care and adoption for us, I've never thought I could be so angry at people when I learned my daughter's case. I never had felt rage like I had before. And I had to work through all of that hate and rage and anger. And when I get frustrated as a father, I've got to work through the conflict I have in my heart towards my little ones. God sometimes uses things like our choices or like our circumstance to just make us more like him. He uses the tension to strengthen us, to make us more like him. The last category we see in scripture of what sort of varying trial can happen is that God gives us trials to serve to advance the gospel. And do we not see that with the book of Esther? Everything that she went through, everything that Mordecai went through was so that God could set up something for all the Jewish people and all the people in all the known land to know about him. And God allowed a trial to advance the gospel. Isn't that why many of you planted this church? Has this just Just a survey. Has this church plant been easy for any of you? No one raised their hand. Even online, people are like, I'm signing off now. Like this church plant has been hard for all of us. We went through a pandemic. We've moved about a thousand times, right? We're in community groups that have multiplied and split and people have moved and people have come. This is hard. But why do we do it? To advance the gospel. Your trials will vary in so many ways. And it could be so many things. 
Maybe it is infertility, maybe it's a relationship, but regardless of where you find yourself, your trial, past, present, or future is not random. You have to know that. It's not me handing you some random numbers that have no purpose. Whatever trial, however small or however big, it's not random. It is purposeful for your good. And that'll be key in a moment when we come back to that. Which leads us to point number three here, okay? Point number three, the truth that James wants us to see is that trials will be used for your good, God's glory, and to advance the gospel. We talk about that a lot at our church, Cole Brighton, a ton. Trials are used for your good, God's glory, and to advance the gospel. How do I know? Look at verse two again. James says, church, I want you to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds and then follow his thinking here. He's getting logical with you. He's giving you a three-step program here of what trials will do for your good. Bear with me, here we go. He says, for you know that number one, the testing of your faith is gonna produce something. The testing of your faith will produce something called steadfastness. Steadfastness, which is a type of strength, an inner strength, an inner resolve, an endurance. It'll produce something in you. So the testing of your faith will produce something in you. And then he says, let steadfastness, you gotta let it have its full effect. You gotta let it have its full effect. Don't jump out of the trial. Don't always run from every hardship. Don't leave it because if you let it have its full effect, then you get the result of the trial. You get the purpose of it, that it may, it may be complete in you. It may be perfect in you so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see what trials are used for? It's gonna produce something in you that's going to result in something that happens outside of you. Do you see that? You see how trials work? They're not random. They're not meaningless. They have a design and purpose. Let me briefly walk through a couple of these. You really need to get what James is saying here. And so does my heart. So how are these trials gonna be used? The first thing he sort of highlights here, if you're taking some sub points, this is like sub point A, is that trials will test. They're gonna test your faith. They're gonna refine you. So listen, each of life's difficulties are intended by God to help your faith, guys, but not hurt your faith. Every trial, every situation is actually designed to refine you, not to reduce your faith, okay? But that takes time. Have you guys ever seen either in person or online uh, the process of someone, how they refine gold? Have you guys seen that by chance? Some of you might have seen that. Andrew's nodding his head because he's seen it because he's the man. Here's what they do. When you go into like a mine, it, it's not like what you think it is that you just kind of chip on some rocks and all of a sudden a gold bar just pops out. You're gonna have some rock, some sediment, some gold kind of clunked and stuck together. So what they do is they mine for these rocks with gold stuck in it. They take this and they put it in a large iron container and then they heat it up with fire until it's boiling and everything begins to melt. This trial by fire, which we've all heard that phrase, it comes from this analogy, the trial by fire that the rock goes through is so that the gold can be refined and the rock impurities may be melted away. So listen, so that the gold can become clearer, stronger, and richer. And the same is true 
with how God uses trials to refine our faith. So what's a trial do? A trial burns away the parts of us that are harmful to us. Is that not a good thing that God would do? God uses a trial to burn away the harmful things that we would choose, that we would do. He burns away the parts of us that are harmful to us, harmful to others, and harmful to God's glory. So what's trials do? They refine us because they begin to renew us and reshape us. So trials will be a test for this. Guys, I've shared this when we were going through Ephesians chapter six, we we're talking about spiritual warfare. And one of the ways we guard ourselves is that helmet of salvation. I struggle a lot with my mental thought life of Aaron, you're not good enough. You've not tried hard enough. You're not smart enough. You're not a good enough leader. You're not a good enough husband. Not enough is the mantra which my heart wakes up and condemns me daily. Not enough is what my heart and mind tell me every day. This church plant has not been easy to help me with that. Having children do not help me with that. Being married does not help me with that. Being married and looking at my bank account and what I cannot afford in this city does not help with that. But what would God want to do with a young man who struggles with his identity and his worth other than to put him in circumstances where he knows he's not enough so he leans on the one who is enough? Do you see how that works out in my own life? God puts me in an area where I have to face not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough in every category for me to finally realize that I can't do enough to become enough, that I have to receive and live in and embrace the one who is. So God puts me in this iron container of church planting and parenthood and father and friend, and he puts me in that, and it begins to boil away the sin that's in me and how I lean on myself and how I think that having something will make me someone. And Jesus is leading me to a better embrace of him and preparing me for what's ahead. He's doing the same thing for you. Let me, so let me ask you, where's the, where's the pain point in your life right now? Like, where does it hurt most relationally? Where is that? Is it in your home, your work? Where is that? Don't say that out loud, just think in your head. Where's the pain point in your life? Is it with your kid, your spouse? Is it through a a specific circumstance? Where is that? That's the place that God wants to work. And he's not just gonna be like, hey, just buck, buck up, like get stronger in this place. It's not his goal, but his goal is to create something in you, to do something for you. So you stop leaning on yourself and you begin leaning on him. And that's where true hope and true steadiness and true centeredness happens. Does that make sense, guys? So trials are not weapons in God's hands. They're, they're really gifts. They're really gifts. And that's why James, with audacity and boldness, can say, count it all joy. Because I hate those people that are like, just be happy you're going through trials. I'm like, shove it, right? That's what my heart wants to say. I know that's not Christian, but that's what my heart wants to say. I won't count this all joy. This is hard. But when God is allowing a trial or giving a trial. It's not a weapon, it's a gift. A gift to draw you closer to him and let him be what probably you're pursuing in your life that created that hardship in the first place. That makes sense, guys? Are we, are we okay on that? Like, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just trying to save you from a lot of heartache as we navigate these challenges together. So let me make clear here, the testing of your faith is not intended to determine whether a person has faith or not, It's intended to purify that faith that already exists. And that's why James writing that. He's writing to people that are in poverty, 
They're under religious persecution. They're getting sick. There are lonely. People are dying and they're in despair. And then he rolls up in verse two, count it all joy. Like I'm going to a different church, James. Like can't handle that. But he's like, hey, let me, let me tell you how you can count it all joy. Here's what's working towards. And he gives us that line of thinking. It's testing your faith. It's refining it. It's drawing you closer to God. It's gonna produce something in you and have a result out of you. And if you'll let it have its full effect, which means that people are jumping ship, by the way. James is telling you, stop jumping every ship of trial in your life. We'll get to that in a moment. But he said, if you let it have its full effect, then God will work it to complete you, to do something for you, to benefit you. So I got to race through this because I'm getting a little preachy because I'm like taking all the weeks and stuffing it into one because I'm excited and it's been good for me. But here's a couple things, guys. Suffering has this. Suffering has the power to expose your self-righteousness. That's one way it refines you. One way it tests you. Suffering has the power to expose your self-righteousness. So trials, guys, have a way to draw out your irritability, right? If you're married, are you more often irritable with your spouse than like kind, gentle, and loving? Let's just be real, come on. Are we more irritable with our spouse, right? What about your kids, right? What about your roommates, right? What about your coworkers, right? What about your CG? What about your pastor, right? Trials have a way to draw out your irritability, your envy, your demands. Give me what I want, spouse, friend, church, whatever it could be. Impatience and, and doubts and anger. It has a way of drawing it out. Suffering doesn't make us this way though, does it? It just draws out what's already there boils it to the top. Suffering demonstrates that we're actually not grace graduates. It's graduation weekend for some of our college students. It, suffering demonstrates that we're not grace graduates, that sin is still inside of us and it shows that we're still desperately in need of God's grace. So what comes out of us as we suffer reveals that we need something profoundly more than just relief from that circumstance, right? When sin comes out of us, it reveals that we need something more profoundly than relief from this. We're in need of God's power and his grace to refine us and to reshape us in it. Does that make sense? So quickly, amen, whoever said that. Is that Andrew? Bro, yes, Andrew. I'm with you, Bowie, I'm with you. It has the power to expose self-righteousness and we all need that. That's why trials are good for us. Suffering also has the power to destroy your self-reliance. Guys, you know this one, you felt this. You and I were created not to be self-reliant because self-reliance never produces anything good in us. And so we're created to be dependent on God and mutually dependent on one another. Our lives are a community project. That's why a core value is community group. We need one another and to point each other to what Christ has done for us. And suffering exposes this fact that we're not self-sufficient, that we do in fact need others. The pain and the weakness of suffering causes us to cry out to God, perhaps more genuinely, more deeply, more humbly than we would without the trial. So God sometimes uses the trial to separate us and cut the cord of everything we depend on so that God can give us what we actually need in him. So sometimes your trial is God cutting the cords of things that you think give you life, but they don't give life. Last thing here, then we got to move on because Andrew might want more of the sermon later to amen. Suffering has the power 
to lay waste to our idols, has a way to shake them up and throw them out. Suffering has a way of exposing, guys, what's really most dear and precious to us. And something that trials does is it, it, it makes you feel like I can't live without this thing. So God, please answer, please do something because I've got to have this thing oftentimes, not all the time. And so suffering helps detach those cords as we've stated. It's not just that when we're going through these painful trials, we feel this, but we're afraid of what we'll lose in the suffering because that thing gave us value or worth. And so suffering exposes the inadequacy of what we hook our hope to, to the temporary treasures of this created world and trials reposition where we hook our hope from created things to the creator. So that's why 2 Corinthians 4 reveals to us that suffering actually reminds us that this world is not our home, amen? More times this past year than not, I am, just want to get, I got to make this sort of clear because you don't need to come check on me. I am not suicidal, but I am very much hopeful and aimed at my heart towards heaven. I am done with all the hardship that this earth has to offer. I am fine. There is no suicidal intention with that. I'm saying my heart this past year is so desperately wanting more of heaven. So every time I preach, I feel like I just cite Revelation 21, talking about this new heaven, this new earth. And you guys are like, yeah, we're gonna hit that verse again because it's the only hope that helps us. So when trials happen, Paul tells in 2 Corinthians 4 that it gets your heart ready. Say, man, I don't, I don't really need all that money. I really don't need these possessions. That, that degree's fine, but it's not my everything. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I don't have to have this spouse. Or maybe I don't have to have this kids. Maybe I don't have to have these big church or whatever it is for you, whatever it is because it sets your heart on home, the ultimate home. And so trials have a way of making everything that you and I thought that we had to have the dream, it aims us somewhere else. And there's a beauty that God, God does with that. Something we're often teaching our little girls right now are that your toys are not your happiness. They can bring some temporal excitement, but they're not your happiness. Because if you're a parent, or if you're in co-kids, toys break all the time. So we're trying to redirect their hearts with, hey, your happiness can't be in temporal things. And that's what God does in trials. He's getting your heart aimed towards home. And that helps you with the steadfastness when you go through hardships, right? So sometimes God lets it happen in order to prepare your heart for home. So you're not tangled up with lesser things of this world that really can't serve you like you think that they can. Let her be here, trials. Trials will produce a steadfastness in you. I love that word if you've not studied that word before. Steadfastness points to the idea of remaining under something that's incredibly weighty. It's a picture of a person that's successfully carrying the Friends episode couch up the stairs, pivot, 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 right? That's the idea that we're getting with steadfastness. It's carrying a heavy weight over a long period of time. And like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance over time in the gym, Christians need to learn how to remain faithful underneath certain difficulties. Now, I'm not saying that if you're being abused or neglected or harmed in your home that you're to remain under that. I'm not saying that for sure. But what I'm saying is that steadfastness means a strength inner and outer that happens when you remain under something. 
So steadfastness is what God uses to stretch your capacity for more. So when you go through trials, you start beginning getting stronger to endure more. You can handle more challenges and hardships. And why is God often doing that? To prepare you for something else. Right, so I didn't ask your permission. I'm gonna talk about Hudson and Micah for a moment. That's okay. So I know for you guys early on, uh, it was challenging with Hudson for eating. It was challenges with them, sleepless nights, lots of uh, medical challenges, going to the hospital frequently for you guys. That hardship, as you've said, set you up and prepared you for what you're navigating now with Micah. Amen, Micah. That was his, that was his ah, Amen. What happened with Hudson produces a steadfastness that prepared Haley and Bradley in one element to begin to bring Micah in. And God, because he knows all and sees all and is outside of time, knows that I need to prepare their heart because if they don't have this trial, then this trial will squish them and destroy them. So I've got to strengthen them. I've got to get them ready. And although it was hard and strugglesome and painful, God did that to prepare them for something more. Guys, that's a biblical principle. 2 Corinthians 1 talks about that, that suffering prepares us for how God wants to use us. Make sense? So trials will produce steadfastness in you. Last two things with this, and then we'll move on to some take-home points for you, just some next steps. Uh, Trials will complete your character in Christ. So this passage talked about. The very end, it said, let's your steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete and lack in nothing. What's that meaning? It means that God wants to download his character more in your life. And how does he do it? Through trials. He burns out the areas of sin and hardship to become more like him. James' point here is that when you let endurance run its course through your trial, the goal will be your maturity your Christ-likeness. And what happens if you're more like Christ? You begin to love your home better, your roommate better. You have a better sense of peace and calm and hope and goodness. And other people begin to see and hear Christ through your life. And other people begin to hear and know Christ because of you. So why does God let trials happen? To make you more look like him, believe like him, hope like him. So do you see that your trial is directly related to evangelism, making the gospel known to your neighbor. So guys, we've got to let trial have a full effect. And then here's what I love this last little part. Trials will result in reward. I'm grateful for this passage, verse 12. It says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the refining process, remain faithful, he will receive the crown of life. When God has promised to those who love him. There's lots to talk about what this crown of life means or are there other rewards in heaven or on earth? And yes to all of them. If you and I are faithful in trial, God will bring reward. I'm not saying you're gonna be healthy, happy, whole, perfect, the rest of it. I'm not saying that, but God rewards those is the principle who remain faithful under trial. And this is God's promise to us. So here's a couple of things I want you to take home, put in your back pocket. I give you three truths about trials, but I want to give you some take home steps here. 
when you're in the midst of a trial, when you're going into one or you're exiting one, which is all of us in this room, here are four things I want you to know. The very first thing is please know, please know you are not alone. You are not alone in your trial. You are not alone. That's what the enemy wants you to think, that what you're going through is so unique to you. It's so particular to you that no one could understand you, no one can help you, and you'll be stuck there forever. Have any of you felt that before? Have you heard that lie in your heart before, any of you? Yes, absolutely, yes. It's a familiar tactic of the enemy. But I love what James tucks up in the introduction for your hope. He wants you to know that you're not alone. Look at verse one again. He says, hey guys, my name is James. I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Dispersion. What does that bring up in our mind? It's a scattering of God's people all throughout the known world when they were supposed to be in one area, one regional land that God gave them was to be the promised land. They're all to live there because of their sin, the brokenness of the world and trials and all of this, that land was separated. They're away from community. They're not in the same worship area together. They're going through hardships. And James saying, all of you who are reading my book, you're not alone. Everyone's going through trials. Everyone's going through suffering. And we all need each other is what James is saying. And I, James is starting out, he's saying, I'm a servant of the God who can help you in that suffering. I love what he's doing. What's he saying? He's saying gospel and community in the very first verse. Got thunder. We're definitely gonna be downstairs for the meal, Emily. So I love this. The first trial, oh, our car. Luckily we got the tarp on the back. We'll face that trial, may they come, Okay. Face that trial, may they come. But I love what James is saying here. He's like, you're not alone. There's many in the land that go through hardships and you need each other. James is trying to bring them together to let them know we need one another. And then James is telling us, I'm the servant of a God. I'm a servant of God that went through suffering and that could be present in your suffering, pull out good in your suffering and bring an end to suffering all one day. Is that not good hope, guys? Good hope. You're not alone in your trials. Guys, this is why we need CG. This is why you gotta be open and honest with your sin, your struggles in DNA group. This is why we may need to have a one-on-one as your pastor or another leader in this church. This is why you may need to go to our counseling center that our network started because trials happen to all of us and some are too big. They're too deep to carry yourself. And so in the first verse, James is reminding us, you're not alone. There's a God that I serve that is with you in your trial. There's a God that I serve that went to suffering on the cross for you. And there's a dispersion. There's many that struggle and the many come together can help and love one another. Does it make sense, guys? First thing you got to take home, you're not alone in your trials. Number two, this is for the runners in the room, which I'm clearly not with my physique or my desire. I'm not a runner. This is for you. Runners, listen. Look towards the reward of the finish line and not the pain of heartbreak hill. I think that could make sense to us if you're a marathon runner, if you know the Boston Marathon in the room. This is very helpful for you to see. Look towards the reward of the finish line at the end, not the pain of the hardest part of the trial. Uh, Bobby ran the Boston Marathon. I think Melissa ran the Boston Marathon. I watched the Boston Marathon as literally I ate Cheetos and drank. 
watching this with my kids. I'm like, go, Bob, just like chomping down the food. Bobby just came off a heartbreak hill. He's sweating. He's tired. I'm just crunching on food. Yeah, I'm eating in your face. Like, didn't mean for that to be the case, but in hindsight, that's what happened. And I'm learning more from you runners who do 5Ks or half marathons. You guys aren't thinking about, oh, this is the hardest part. I don't know if I'm gonna make it at the hardest part, which was Heartbreak Hill. If you're familiar with Boston's Marathon, you're thinking not towards the hardest part, you're looking toward the finish line, the results or the reward. That's what James saying. He's saying, count it all joy, not because the trials are easy, but he's saying it's because they're gonna produce something. There's gonna be a result at the finish line of that trial. Count it all joy, not because of heartbreak hill, because the finish line of steadfastness and perfection of character and completeness and lacking in nothing. And that's why I love in verse 12, he says, bless the man who remains steadfast because you're gonna get a reward, the crown of life. Yes, that refers to things in eternity, but also has implications for the present. I don't know what those rewards are, but if God promises a reward for faithfulness, then I want it. Like God's a good gift giver. If you know my wife, she's a good wife. It's a miracle that I'm married. It's a miracle that God will give me kids. It's a miracle that I would even be a pastor if you knew my past. God's a good giver of gifts and I want all of them. And so I wanna do what he says in order for that reward. So look towards the finish line, not just the pain of what you're in right now. Here's something I love about Keller. He's wrote this book on suffering and hardship sort of become a companion to my heart. And he says this, he says, take a moment and look at Jesus. He was perfect, right? And yet he goes around crying most of the time. He's always weeping and he's a man of sorrows, the Bible calls him. And do you know why? Because he's perfect, Keller says. Because when you're not all absorbed in yourself, you can feel the sadness of the world. And therefore, what you actually have is that joy of the Lord that happens inside of sorrow. It doesn't come after the sorrow. It doesn't come after the uncontrollable weeping. And then he says this, the weeping drives you into the joy. It enhances the joy. And the joy enables you to actually feel your grief without sinking into it. In other words, you're finally emotionally healthy and walking with God. This is helpful for us to see. Jesus, the man of sorrows, walked through deep suffering and hardship, death and betrayal and loss, crucifixion, leaving glory. And in all of that, he also, in Hebrews tells us that he, he went to the cross with great joy, what was set before him. You were his joy. The fact that you would become his son or daughter by faith in him. He went to the cross, not because he was gonna enjoy the cross. That's, he didn't count the cross as joy, but it's what came after it. It was you and me becoming his family. It's a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. So he didn't stop at the cross. He went through with the resurrection and brought you and I to his family and is building eternity for you and I to be a part of. So let's look towards the finish line and not the pain of heartbreak hill. Last two things to get together. This one might be one of my main emphasis I want us to take home with us. I'm just gonna say it pretty blunt. Sounds pretty harsh, but bear with me. Stop trying to escape your trials. It's a pretty harsh comment. Stop trying to escape your trials. 
Verse three says, and you know that the testing of your faith, it's gonna produce steadfastness, a strength and character in you. Verse four, he says, and you've gotta let steadfastness have its full effect. You gotta let it have its full effect. You got to do it that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Millennials and Gen Z, which this is our church with the exception of a few children. Millennials and Gen Z, we are trash at this. I grew up with a YOLO, you live once, why live a hard life, right? We are not good at this. So hear me out. Because when we are the worst at letting our steadfastness have its full effect, you're not letting God do what he wants to do with that trial. So you're gonna see that trial again. It's a harsh comment for me to say, but it's true. If we hit the eject button on every trial in our life, that God wants to put in front of us, oftentimes you're gonna revisit it again and again and again. And as you click, click eject, 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 you're acting like Jonah. Jonah rebelling against God's plan and will for his life because you didn't like it, it was hard, you didn't want it. I'm not saying that you need to stay in an abusive relationship and neglect, you, you know I'm not saying that. But I'm saying for many of us, we're, we're very quick if it starts getting uncomfortable, if there's some pain relationally, we want to just eject from that trial or that hardship. And we've got to let it have its course. Guys, we tend to be so intolerant. Our generations, millennials, Gen Z, so intolerant of the hardship of difficulty. And God is intolerant of our sin. And so he uses hard things to deliver us, deliver us from it. And the only name for that concept is grace. It's true that grace often comes in uncomfortable forms. When we, listen, this is hard. When we cry out for grace, we're often already getting it because it's not the grace of release from the trial, but it's the grace of rescue and transformation from our selfishness because that's the grace that we really need. That's a hard word. That's a hard word for us. That doesn't mean you don't quit your job. That doesn't mean you don't move from the city one day. But what it means is, are you trying just to avoid hardship because it's uncomfortable or it's challenging? Have you prayed about it? Have you sought after it? Have you sought counsel in that? Or have you just hit the eject button because you don't want to deal with it anymore? Guys, our generations have to stop that. We've got to stop that in general. We're shortcutting and being disobedient to what God is saying. Let steadfastness have its full effect so that he can do something in you and for you. So that brings us to our last, last very thing here. Number four, your take home, seek God for wisdom and for his strength and for resolve. I love how these two things seem disconnected in the paragraphs that James gives us. He's talking about trials. Then he's like, ask for wisdom. Very much they make sense of how they go together. So James says, hey, if any of you lack wisdom in your trial and your hardship, if you don't know what to do, if you're struggling, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Meaning God's not gonna start yelling at you because you needed wisdom. Let him ask God and it'll be given to him. But let him ask in faith, he says, not doubting that God won't give it to you because if you're doubting, then God won't give it to you. He says, but let him ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of sea. And it's just tossed back and forth with the wind. With whatever opinion is happening, they'll follow. 
For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord because he's listening to all the other winds of opinions. Verse eight, he's a double-minded person, unstable in all his ways. The spiritual growth that is the goal of trials will only be received when divine wisdom is present. And wisdom is that quality needed if God's people are going to endure trials with fortitude and godliness. So James makes it clear here that the believer should have no hesitation in asking God for wisdom and help. God will not scold you. And it says that God gives generously to all without approach who will come and ask him. God is ready to help us. He is willing to help us. He wants to help us in our trials. Guys, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. It's unbearable if you think that God is not for you or with you or wants to enter in. So in James 1.5, God is inviting you here to draw close to him in prayer, to help you know why are you going through what you're going through? How do I walk through it? God, will you help me with the pain and the struggle? God is inviting you in this place to pray to him, to seek the scriptures, to receive the truth and the grace of the hope in your trial. And as we close, I want you to see, is not suffering, is not suffering the very heart of Christianity? Is it not the very heart of the Christian story? Because it's at the very heart of Jesus' experience. Listen, Jesus gave up his glory so that you could be clothed with it. He was shut out so you could have access. Jesus was bound and nailed to the cross for our sin so that you could be free. He was cast out of the city so that you could be brought into the kingdom. Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that could really destroy you and he cast it away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only benefit you. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, Keller says. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns into something glorious. So Christianity doesn't just offer a consolation prize at the very end. Christianity offers something more than consolation, but restoration. Not just a life that we had before the suffering happened, but a life that we've always wanted but could never achieve. And because the joy of Christ, death and resurrection, this is what is yours in eternity. This is why we look forward. So heaven is not a consolation prize, it's a restoration Because of the resurrection of Jesus and therefore our faith in him, we get a resurrection. Guys, we get back all the love, all the loved ones, all the goods, all the beauties of this life that were lost in suffering. We get it back. We're restored. We get it back in new and unimaginable degrees of glory, joy, and strength. This is what our hope is. This is your hope. So your trial's not the end. You don't just lose it. You get it back even more so in glory. And so therefore, verse two, as we close, that's why James says, count it all joy. My brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know now, you know now that the testing of your faith is producing steadfastness. And you, when you let it have its full effect, 
you'll be complete and full and full of peace and joy and you'll lack nothing until you see everything you lost restored in glory. That's why you count it all joy. Let's pray. 